A few changes here on the Unanchored podcast this week. My big cousin Mo sitting in for Shahid as my co-host. And we'll start by talking about race and hockey. And Mo, a few words there. Yeah, Willie O'Ree and Breaking the Color Barrier in 1958. All right. Uh, welcome back to the Unanchored Podcast. My name is Zamir Kareem. Shahid is uh, taking some time away from the podcast right now. Uh, we're going to get him back soon. And we have a few cool guests coming up for you in the coming weeks. And, you know, we've been a little bit uh, inconsistent with our publishing of the podcast recently and, and taking the end of the summer off. But hopefully try to get back to it a little bit uh, more so, but you know, life is a little crazy right now, but it's my pleasure to welcome my, my big cousin, Mo, Mo Hashem, the founder of hockey for youth. I've been wearing this t-shirt on the podcast probably like five or six times. Keep on expecting Shahid to ask me, what is this t-shirt? Why am I wearing it? Uh, but Mo's also wearing it. Uh, and Mo is the, the founder and executive director of Hockey for Youth and sitting in as my co-host this week. And Mo, just kind of give us an idea, just give us an idea of what Hockey for Youth is. Okay, but before I get to that, I just want to say that you took time off to play golf and I'm super jealous of you because here in Toronto, I basically spent my summer with my wife making sure that her dental clinic could be open we went through renovation so i'm yeah. very jealous because you took time off <laughs> to play golf i have not played one round this year and i don't think i'm gonna get to any more I I there's no chances there's no chances for me to play golf right now <laughs> I it think was I've... five degrees last week <laughs> was it really that cold oh my super cold here in toronto so so that's that's one thing i'm gonna say you took time off to play golf and well, i'm jealous well i was supposed to play on sunday with shahid for his birthday well happy birthday shahid because his birthday was yesterday happy birthday uh, uh your birthday was two weeks ago happy birthday to you too Thank uh, you. and but we had to cancel our round of golf because we're living in this apocalyptic smoke from fires in california oregon and washington state right now like it's well, I just look. We've got a pandemic. We've got wildfires out of control that are caused by climate change, and we've got social justice issues. Black Lives Matter. There's so much going on right now, and I I know you asked the question, and I I will get to it now because I think it's a good segue. The world is nobody knows what's happening. Right? I think we can agree on that. Nobody knows what's happening. There's a lot of bad things going on. And I think, you know, touching on something that's really important in the sports world and social justice coming together, especially in the hockey world, I think it's such a critically important time to talk about, you know, diversity and inclusion in the sport. And what we're trying to do at Hockey for Youth is we're trying to give newcomer and high priority youth an opportunity to play hockey to foster social inclusion. And we're doing it with free hockey programming. It's free. It's, there's no cost involved here. There's no traveling to this arena and that arena. The kids that we work with, we partner with high schools here in Toronto uh, and Montreal and in Ottawa. And in a short amount of time, in four years, we've been able to grow to three cities. We're now going to get up to hopefully 11 programs. We're, 
We've got plans to expand in Nova Scotia, out to Alberta and BC. When the time is right, uh, you know, once the pandemic is lifted, we've got plans in place. And, and the reason why we do this is because newcomer and high priority teens are not going to gravitate towards this sport because there are just too many barriers. And when you think about minor hockey, I mean, minor hockey is not set up for welcoming a 15 year old girl who's never played hockey before hmm. or never skated before for that matter. And so, you know, that's what we're trying to do. And what that does for the diversity inclusion side is we are bringing kids of various different backgrounds together. We have kids from 32 different countries of origin, including Vietnam, Syria, Jamaica, Pakistan, uh, Japan, uh, that have come together to learn how to play what we consider Canada's game. And Canada is so diverse as a country, we talk about that pluralism, that multiculturalism that exists here, but unfortunately it just doesn't exist in the hockey world. Mm -hmm. or not to the tune where it should be, whether we're talking about, you know, gender issues, uh, diversity issues of, of based on race, there's a lot of challenges in the community. And I, and I will just touch on this because, you know, what we talked about in our intro is I mentioned Willie O'Ree. And the reason why I bring up Willie O'Ree is because still in this country, a lot of people don't know who Willie is. And I think that's a travesty. I actually think that he should be on one of the bills you know, there was a conversation around who should be on the $5 bill and they settled mm -hmm. on Viola Davis. And I think that was, was it Viola Davis? Viola no. Davis. Uh, Viola Desmond. Viola Desmond. Yeah, Sorry, Viola, Viola Davis is the actress. <laughs> Viola Desmond, right? Like a, a beautiful uh, person who should be on the bill. But I think Willie O'Ree would be equally important to put on one of Canada's bills. He should be known for the... the the path that he blazed in spite of there being a colored hockey league 22 years before the national hockey league got started in Halifax in Nova Scotia. That was where colored hockey was. And there was probably a number of players, including Herb Carnegie who should have been in the NHL and they just weren't allowed to play in what was the grandest stage and continues to be the grandest stage. And I think there's a lot of barriers for people of color uh, so we're doing our part. We're going to talk to some great guests today. Renee Hess of Black Girl Hockey Club, you know, who's, who's blazing a trail for young black women and older black women who are fans. And we're going to talk to your boy, Salim. Yeah. Yeah. And, and getting an opportunity to, to talk about not only uh, being, being a fan of hockey and what, what hockey can do, uh, to, to help foster inclusion, but also how uh, reporters can be part of the catalyst for change. And we're seeing with, with the, uh, the Black Lives Matter protests, and the, the pause that the NHL and NBA ha uh, had um, during the playoffs here, that how important it is to have these conversations and not only have the conversations now, but uh, use those conversations as a catalyst for for, for further change and 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 we really saw it i i'm really harping and we talk about it in our interview with with renee uh really harping on what what the nba did with uh putting money aside and helping uh lebron james uh voting rights organization uh i i want to see some of that stuff come 
through hockey as well. And, and, and yes, some of the arenas that, that, that house NHL teams also house NBA teams, and they're going to be using some of those spaces for, for election day coming up uh, in, in the U S president, presidential election coming up in, in November. But uh there's there's so much more to be done, but obviously this just getting voting rights uh, money into voting right, rights organizations in the U.S. right now is so important. Yeah, and I and I think that you know Renee touching on or you touching on that, and Renee talking about that, I think it's 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 critically important, right? There has to be systemic changes. If we recognize that there's systemic racism, then there needs to be systemic changes, and that's a good way of doing it. And I think in the hockey world. You know, we're going to touch on it a little bit with Salim as well when he talks about, you know, how much do you push? You know, what's the line between being vocal and then kind of overstepping and maybe shooting yourself in the foot? These are the challenges that exist and, and the nuances that exist in the advocacy work that's being done, whether it's at the broadcasting level, whether it's being done at the grassroots level, or within the C-suites at, you know, NHL clubs or within the, the upper management levels. Um, you know, we talk about pipeline and, and having a seat at the table and developing that pipeline, getting, uh, you know, uh, people of color, um, BIPOC community members into um, opportunities where they can then enact change. And so there's this dichotomy that exists. Right. And I think we all feel it. People of color, we feel it. We, we want to be vocal. We want to speak out about things, but we're also careful, you know, quote unquote, not to rock the boat because we don't want to be seen as that person as the boat rocker. But at the same time, we're trying to advocate. And I think it's, the, there's this delicate balancing act, uh, but I think we're going to see the dichotomy of that, um, you know, with our two guests today as well. Sure. And, and let's uh, just set up our first guest coming up and, and, and that's Renee Hess. Renee uh, started the Black Girl Hockey Club in 2018 and is a hockey fan first and foremost from Southern California. Somehow became a Pittsburgh Penguins fan, uh, but it just it all started with the Black Girl Hockey Club all started up with a meetup at a Washington Capitals game. Uh, in 2018 and from there it, it's grown into a national and an international organization which works to advocate for uh, black young girls and women in, in, to get involved in hockey as not only players uh, but, but as fans as well and we welcome Renee to our podcast here on Unanchored. Okay, let's uh, let's get started, Renee, and and uh, thanks so much for for taking time to to join us, and and we're talking a, about a really important topic that has come around sport recently, uh, and and it's been um, I guess reaffirmed or or brought back. It was brought back into the spotlight after after the shooting of uh, Jacob Blake in in Kenosha, Wisconsin. Uh, the the place for sports as a uh, a vehicle or a catalyst for the conversation around racial justice, around Black Lives Matter, around diversity, uh, and this is why we're having this conversation with 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 Mo and 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 yourself. How is it? Seems like this is the first time sports has been used as this catalyst for change, and uh, like, what's the importance there? 
Well, it seems like the first time maybe in our lifetime, but you think back to like Jesse Owens and Muhammad Ali, sports has been a catalyst to talk about social issues as long as sports have been played. And so I think it's, it's a good thing to see this uh, sort of activism within sports resurfacing right now because it's one of our times in history that it's incredibly necessary for everyone that has a platform to utilize it uh, for for justice honestly and now mo um like you're this is the first time you're coming on our podcast as not only a guest but also a guest host and uh like you and i have you've been in the space quite for quite a long time. And when it comes to uh, getting uh, people that, that otherwise wouldn't have an opportunity to get involved in sport, get involved in ice hockey specifically, like it, it seems like this is a long time coming to, to that we should have been talking about diversity in hockey, especially that's such a white dominated sport, but like it, it's 2020 and we're, this is the first time where it's really getting the headlines. Yeah, look, I, you know, before I even answer your question, I'm, I'm so, I'm always interested in how things kind of come together. So, uh, Renee, you talked about Jesse Owens, and I, I happen to be listening to uh, an interview with his granddaughter, and, and how Jesse Owens, you know, wins four gold medals and comes back to the United States, and the president of the United States at that time, Roosevelt, wouldn't even welcome him to the White House, because he just didn't recognize him. So, I think the point about social justice and sport uh, melding together is is an important uh, it's it's important to to raise that because it's been going on for a long time. I think the the methodology of us communicating has changed so much that now all of a sudden we think that well this is oh it's happening right now it's never happened before but if you look at the history of sport and social justice they've always come together. Um, you know, we talk about the Olympics, um, you know, and the raising of the right hand and, and, and their fist. And, you know, th- this is where I think, Renee, you're, you're touching on it a little bit here and we're going to get more into it. But I think it's about having a seat at the table. You know, I think it goes beyond that. Before it was social justice for social justice and doing something that was going to provoke uh, conversation and probably provoke you know, negative conversation, unfortunately, but now it's about having a seat at the table. And I think, uh, you know, where Hockey for Youth stands, at least, it's about giving these kids an opportunity to play a sport that would be out of reach for a number of reasons, Uh, whether it's gender or social uh, issues, uh, financial issues, um, you know, uh, or, or just not knowing about it, right? If you're new to the country, how do you know about a sport that you've never been exposed to? Um, but I think it's really about having a seat at the table. And what I'm curious to know, uh, Renee, when you started uh, Black Girl Hockey Club, like what, what were you, what kind of prompted that? You know, um, you're creating space and I think that's important. So what prompted you to start it? You know, you're exactly right. I wanted to create a space and I wanted to build a community that it seemed did not exist. Even to my eyes as a black woman hockey fan, I, you know, I'm looking out into the, the places where you uh, experience hockey, whether it is online or at a game or in a bar or, you know, in a rink with youth hockey, um, I'm looking at those places and I'm not seeing black faces. And
And I, you know, I spent a lot of time wondering if I was the only black woman in Southern California who enjoyed hockey. And I reached out within the space that was made available to me, which was on social media. And I started looking for other black hockey fans and just people involved in hockey that were people of color. And I came across, you know, Kwame Mason's documentary uh, and I, Black Ice, I came across um, or Soul on Ice, I'm sorry. I came across The Color of Hockey blog by Bill Douglas. And I'm like, okay, so I found some black guys. All right. I know that there's black men that are playing professionally in hockey, but where are the black women? I still, you know, it still wasn't a space just right for me. And I, you know, I, I came across Blake Bolden and Sarah Nurse. And some of, you know, we have Kalia Johnson uh, and a few other Black female players in various, you know, organizations. And I I sat down with Blake Bolden. She was really easy to get in touch with. Uh, She uh, lives in California. And so we set up a time to meet. And she was so kind and encouraging and also a little surprised that there's another black woman here and we're talking about hockey and the lack of representation. And she encouraged me to keep pushing, keep looking, keep, keep digging. Uh, and so, you know, I decided to get a group together uh, to go see a hockey game. Uh, we went to Washington DC because they had just won the cup. They had a couple black players with Devante Smith-Pelly and uh, Madison Bowie. They have a couple black minority owners in the team uh, with Earl Stanford and um, the other woman that I can't remember her name right now. And so, you know, it seemed like <laughs> a great idea to, to head out to DC because still, you know, on the West Coast, I wasn't finding any black female fans. So, you know, I hooked up with uh, Bill Douglas, who is in DC, and his wife, and they helped pull together a group of 45 Black women, our kids, um, friends, and family, and we went to a Capitals game. And once we were all together, I realized that this was a community that was sorely underrepresented and also in, in desperate need of community. And so, uh, you know, we immediately went and um, scheduled another get together and the rest is history. We just ki- it kind of snowballed into this, you know, social media space as well as you know a chance for black women and our and our friends to kind of get together in real life in a hockey space and as we started just talking about the issues around you know um, BIPOC folks in hockey we realized that we could probably do more than just hang out and go to hockey games and we started, you know, um, with, you know, young girl, uh, young black girl hockey players and helping them raise money for tournaments and stuff like that. Uh, just getting the word out that their GoFundMe needed, you know, some cash. And we realized that there's, a, there's such a need there. Um, you know, like you were saying, Mo, there's so many at- reasons why 
BIPOC kids don't play hockey, that we wanted to at least try to eliminate some of those hurdles. And so we developed, um, we decided to become a nonprofit because we wanted to be able to get money to give away some money and to give scholarships, targeted scholarships mm -hmm. to black girls that play hockey. And so we just gave away our first scholarship this summer. And we, a week ago, picked the uh, awardees of our fall scholarship, which we'll announce in October. And it's just really awesome to know that at least, you know, part of that burden, because we, what we asked um, people who were applying for, for the scholarship to do was to write an essay, a couple essay questions about, you know, what the need is and what they plan to do with, you know, hockey basically in their lives and within their communities and reading a, some of these stories it was just, I mean, we had like 30 applications and I want to give everybody something, but we can't because we're just little old us, you know, um, and reading some of these stories, we really realized that there's such a need out there for the community for, you know, to break through some of these barriers, Mo, that you're talking about um, in terms of finances or, you know, whatever that is. And so, you know, we, that's what we decided to do and we're continuing to do it because it seems that um, nobody else was, you know? It, I, I love the fact, first of all, that all of this that you've done in such a short amount of time, I think that's super remarkable. I think what's awesome too is you flew from Southern California to Washington to go watch hockey. Like that is a, you're a true <laughs> hockey fan when you oh, start yeah. doing it. You know, <laughs> I, I was in Las Vegas one time for a hockey game. And um, since I'm in California, you know, Vegas is about four hours away. We were going to see a hockey game. I had friends who flew in from Texas, one from Texas, one from Minnesota. We called it our, you know, our annual girls hockey you know, it was our hockey, yeah. hockey holiday. And we went to go get matching hockey tattoos, which I have right there on my wrist. Wow. And that, that, um, that's what made me a true hockey fan. That's, that's what I've heard. Is that what now, is that? That's you... um, some, can you see it? It's some flowers and a hockey. Yes. Oh, nice. That's awesome. It's um, designed by a friend of mine, Meg Smitherman. And we all got, so we got original artwork, all of us tattooed um, and right before we went to go see the Penguins lose against the Vegas Golden Knights. <laughs> you're, you're, on your, you're on your way to Brent, Brent Burns' stand. Uh, I'm steps. almost there. I'm you, know, almost just, there. you just got to get a few more up your arm. Yeah. And, and a humongous beard. A beard, yeah. And a hum <laughs> <laughs> uh, what, what, like, I want to know more about your backstory. Like, what is your personal journey with hockey? You know, my personal journey with hockey, I, I recently had a conversation with a colleague and we were talking about fandom. And I'm a fan. Like, I love being a fan of whatever. And hockey sparked my interest because I had so many um, mutual friends who, you know, we, we had mutual interests within various fandoms. And they were also hockey fans. And, you know, I considered myself more of a pop culture nerd. You know, I, I love new literature and film and television. Um, you know, I'm the person who's going down to Comic-Con or standing in line to see Star Wars at midnight. That's, that's me. I've grown up like that. 
And so sports was really never in my purview. I had friends who played and friends who were even interested in hockey, but it just never really felt like a space for me. And um, as I discovered some of my nerd friends also were hockey fans, I, I couldn't um, I couldn't understand the connection. How, how does that work? And then come to find out sports fans are just big nerds in, yes. in disguise, you Definitely. know, in yeah. hoodies and track <laughs> pants or whatever. So I, I got interested in hockey and being the nerd that I am, I started reading and researching about it and listening to games instead of going to games because they're really expensive. And it, so is NHL yeah. TV. Um, and as I listened to the games and learned the lingo and kind of got that excitement around the sport, when I finally went to a live game, I was like, oh my gosh, this is amazing. I'm hooked. This is so much fun. It's so exciting. Just the whole atmosphere had been nothing that I had ever been a part of before. So I came to sports in a kind of roundabout way, uh, just because I, I love being a fan of, of, of anything. And hockey is such an exciting sport to be a part of. Uh, I was immediately hooked as soon as I got to see a live game. And so, you know, I'm not somebody who played as a kid or even had any friends uh, who played as a kid. But that also goes to, you know, what we were talking about, what, what access did I have? in my youth, I, we never, you know, in Southern California, especially, we don't have um, hockey teams at high schools. We don't have even college teams playing hockey. We have a, a bunch of professional teams, but those are as foreign to, you know, me as, as any, anything else, because how do you, you know, as a young person even get access to that? And so, you know, I never really considered hockey to be something that I would even remotely be interested in in my youth, just because I never had any access or any exposure to it at all. So we're trying to, we're trying to shift that narrative mm -hmm. and, and bring the sport to a more diverse audience now, because it seems, it seems like a no-brainer that the black community would embrace something as athletic and exciting as the game of hockey. So you say about access to hockey and that's the biggest thing. And, and Mo, I know with hockey for youth and it's, it's about providing access and, and it made me think of the story that you tell Mo uh, about your origins in hockey. And, and why don't you fill us in a little bit about, about where like, yeah, uh, you run hockey for youth and uh, you're big, big proponent of, of uh, diversity in hockey, getting access to, to, to more women in hockey. But you and I have uh, like a, your story is, is, is very powerful in how you came to the game in the first place. Yeah. So I, you know, it's, it's interesting. And I, I'm so glad Renee, first of all, that you've, you've shared your journey because we often don't think that people can become fans of something at a later point, right? We often think, oh, well, you're exposed to a sport at a young age, or you're maybe you're exposed to comics or whatever it is, and then you become a fan. But 
throughout our lives, we have different experiences and different things come to us at different times. And so, so you know, my story is that, that, that story that's, you know, the typical story of a kid falling in love with a game as a child. However, the nuance in my story is, is paralleled with what I do now in life, which is getting newcomers to the sport, into the sport. And my journey is my parents came to Canada and immigrated in 1972. And it just so happens that Zamir is, is my cousin, of <laughs> course. And so my, my dad is the oldest in the family and Zamir's mom is one of the youngest in the family. But, you know, they came to, this, to Canada in 1972 as immigrants and I was born in 1977. And the story really goes that my mom had taken my older brother and older sister to go see Stars on Ice. And of course, those tickets would have been gifted to her um, you know, and so she went and so she knew what skating was and you fast forward to, you know, I'm six years old now and my neighbor or our neighbor, Mrs. Brown, uh, you know, says to my mom, Hey, my son's outgrown his hockey equipment. Why don't you put your youngest son into hockey? And because my mom knew what skating was, there was a natural inclination to, okay, I know what this is. Okay, let's do it. We're, we're getting equipment for free. Let's, let's try it out. And I vividly remember taking steps onto the ice. Maybe it wasn't my first practice, but I vividly remember falling on my butt uh, and getting back up and loving it. And so, you know, my journey through hockey was I got a chance to play and I continued playing. I played right through and we didn't have a lot of money at that time. So the way that my mom was able to kind of scrounge things together um, you know, the, my dad would take me to early morning practices and, and all that. But as we started to grow older and my older siblings started to, you know, figure out, okay, we're, we're going to go off to university. My mom was kind of juggling a lot at that time, but I continued to play. I played right through university. And what's important to me is that journey that I was on was part and parcel because of what my parents did and what my mom really did. She, she did a lot of the heavy lifting. Um, so when I think about the kids that I'm working with, again, the exposure and the, you know, having that proverbial seat at the table or chance to step out on the ice, that's why we always say the only barrier should be the boards. That really should be the only barrier because when you go outside and you want to play basketball, you can do that. But hockey just presents itself in such an exclusive way. Um, you know, and that's why the organization exists. And I will say one other thing, the, the key thing for us as an organization is I didn't want to replicate what other people were doing. I really was concerned about that 15 year old girl who's just arrived from Jamaica, like Brittany, or, you know, another 15 year old girl like Abrar who's arrived from Syria. They have virtually no connection to the game, it, like virtually nothing. And to me, those are the kids that are, they're just kind of left out there. They're, they're, they exist, but they don't really exist. It's you know, a lot of programming centers around six to 10 year olds. And that's great. But what about teenagers? Um, you know, I think there's a, there's a lot to be said about that. And yeah. Renee, yeah, go ahead, Zam. Well, uh, uh, I was just going to say that, that, that like my connection kind of through Mole 
and getting involved in the game. But like my experience was completely different than both of yours as well. And the, despite the three of us coming from a BIPOC visible minority background, we all have three different journeys through the game. Obviously my journey comes through you and through our, uh, my, uh, your younger cousin, uh, my older cousin, Samir, and like getting and getting, uh, seeing him play when he was young and then getting his gear and then getting on the ice. Uh, but it also like in a way, like my journey into hockey was a little bit more traditional considering I'm like almost nine years younger than you. It was a little like a little bit more of the five, six year old kid in Vancouver. All his friends play street hockey. Uh, the Canucks were pretty good at the time. They get to the Stanley Cup final in 94. And that that that's like a pretty traditional way to get through hockey. So like there's there are so many different ways to to fall in love with the game. And it's it, it's so important to uh, to 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 figure out ways to give people more access. And, and we talk about barriers and, and Mo, you and I were talking on the phone uh, yesterday and we were talking about the cost of, of playing the game in a season can, for some people can be six, $7,000. And, and for most people that's not affordable when playing basketball, playing school basketball is going to cost $90 for a, or a hundred dollars for a pair of shoes or soccer, a hundred dollars for a pair of shoes, which for some families is still uh a barrier uh, to reach for, for, for their, for their kids. Well, I think that's a good point, right? You like the, the costs are the guardian did a really great study on hockey about four or five years ago and said, it, you know, a minimum you're going to spend about $4,000 a year for an 11 to 17 year old to play. So that now that's in Canada. So what I'm curious about Renee, you, you started this great organization. You've talked about the scholarships you're yeah. not in a hockey market per se. You're not in a hockey loving country. Maybe it's sixth behind, you know, all the big sports and cornhole and then <laughs> hockey, you know what I mean? Or bowling and then hockey. Like <laughs> right. how do you, how do you, you know, what's, what's the methodology? How do you f- f- just tell me more? Like, I want to know, we want to know more about, first of all, you know, you're talking about these scholarships and these young black women who, who want to continue playing and they need money for tournaments, but you're not in a traditional hockey market. So how do you get that message out there? How do you show the importance of young women getting involved in sport? Um, Honestly, just showing their, their stories, their own, letting them tell their own stories. Because, you know, one thing that I, when I created Black Girl Hockey Club, I didn't expect it to be international right i'm in california like you said non-traditional hockey market we have three hockey teams in california and yet it just feels that it's it's a side note in sports here and so you're absolutely right that where i am it's not a traditional sport for for anyone to even care about but the cool thing that i realized about black girl hockey club is that we're we're we are international where i am it doesn't even matter because we are all over the united states all over canada we have black girl hockey club uh members who live in africa who are you know in Kenya? We have we have some folks out there. We have people across the pond in you know in in England, and so it's really an international community. It has to be because again, nothing like this exists 
for black women. It doesn't matter if I'm in California or Canada. It just, it, it doesn't exist, period. It's not like I'm taking away, like you were saying, well, you wanted to just do something unique. It's not like there's 10, uh, 20 other organizations out there who I'm pilfering people from. And I'm like, hey, come be part of my organization. It literally doesn't exist out there. And so it, it didn't matter that I was from California when I traveled to DC. It didn't matter. A lot of those women were not from DC. They came from all up and down the East Coast. And as we've held uh, uh, meetups across the country, we had people, it's so funny because I met some people, hockey fans from LA in Pittsburgh. They, they traveled to Pittsburgh to come to a black girl hockey club meetup from Los Angeles. And then I ran into them, you know, at a Kings game later on. And so it didn't, it doesn't matter where I am because this is an international movement. It has to be because it doesn't exist otherwise. There's so many people across the world who, so many black people and specifically black women across the world who are hungry for community space. And, you know, Black Girl Hockey Club is just a niche of that larger need. And it's interesting to me because especially in the last few months that we've been on lockdown, that we've, you know, that these um, protests have been going on, that other sports are taking an interest in social justice issues, that the audience for Black Girl Hockey Club has grown, not just from Black Girl hockey fans, but Black Girl sports fans. Black women journalists mm -hmm. who are interested in having a community space with other Black women. And it's great that we can talk about hockey, but they can also break off into their own niche group and talk about baseball or, my gosh, we have wrestling fans. I mean, the, it's, it's, a, it's a community space for, for Black women and our friends and our family period and hockey is just you know the icing on the cake for for us and you know um you were talking about being able to how, how do you uh, illustrate the need for for hockey um scholarships for black women or black girl hockey players but i really think that you know the black community realizes that anytime we can uplift our young black girls in any aspect, that it's gonna be beneficial. And we also know how beneficial participating in sports is for young people anyways. And so, you know, uh, if hockey is their sport of choice, then let's lift them up and support them as long as they want to be involved. Because, you know, anyone can tell you how, um, integral in, you know, having integrity and, and being a team player and all of those values that we espouse that are in hockey, mm -hmm. how important that is, not just for, you know, um, young white males, but also how it can benefit so many other demographics and so many other identities. And I think that, you know, when we had applications for our scholarship, we had about 30 young girls apply from everywhere from Ontario, Canada to Dallas, Texas. So it was just, um, 
it does it doesn't matter where I am, you know, I, I'll go where where the hockey is, right? I'll go where the need is. Um, and I will travel for hockey, obviously. Go ahead, Zamir. So, so uh, Renee, you're talking about the importance of teamwork when it comes to hockey and, 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 uh, and that, and, and, you know, I have that conversation with uh, my fiance, Emily, all the time about how important teamwork is. And, and she didn't grow up uh, around team sports or really around sports at all. And, and her first exposure to sports in life has been through me uh, and, and has, has been kind of funny because uh, she always uh, makes a joke that like, how did I end up with this, uh, with this nerdy jock ho- hockey and golf loving guy? Uh, it, and when this is something that she'd never, like she'd probably never watched a full hockey game until I took her to one in, uh, in November. Uh, last November, we went and saw the Canucks play the uh, the Colorado Avalanche, which, oh, Nathan McKinnon, don't even get me started so right good. there. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but yeah, uh, like, yeah, the, the importance of teamwork, the importance, the, the, the life skills that, that not only hockey, but sports uh, provides, um, like, yeah, it, it's just so important in, in life. And, and how, it, it's a matter of, of trying to get people uh, involved in the game. And, and what are like, are you able to speak to some of the, the opportunities that you're able to provide through your scholarships? Well, you know, one of the things that we, we ask for when we are uh, talking to applicants is we ask them for uh, their grades. Mm-hmm. So we're looking at their academics, obviously. We, I mentioned the two essays. Uh, and then, you know, we ask, we don't directly ask about financial need because, you know, as a person growing up who wasn't rich, mm-hmm. I know that, you know, applying for scholarships is hard anyways, but having to provide proof of my income is can be embarrassing mm-hmm. and it's off-putting and sometimes people don't even want to do that. And so we just kind of ask about, you know, what would this, these funds mean to you and we let them answer for themselves and so once we once we look at those applications and we did it for the first time just last week so this is all very new to us uh we look at financial need definitely Mm. but also just kind of the, the the girl holistically and and who she is as a person and what her goals are and you know what her nominator has to say about her also as a teacher by trade you know i work in a university i'm looking at you know did she follow the directions of the application you know um having to whittle down 30 applicants to four you know that's something that that definitely is a part of the application process. Uh, but also, you know, how, how, what is this person's coach saying about them? What are, mm. what are their teammates saying about them? Um, those are, those are the types of things that we're, we're looking at. Uh, ultimately, you know, we want to give opportunity uh, to young black players to be able to continue engaging in something that is uplifting them and their families. But also we want to be, um, what's the word I'm looking for? We want to be purposeful mm-hmm. with it as well, because, you know, we, we, we want to uplift the families that have need and that have a real desire to continue in something that perhaps they wouldn't be able to continue with mm-hmm. otherwise, because, 
Mo, oh my goodness, you are 100% right. How expensive this sport is on a seasonal basis. In order to create this scholarship, we sat down with a hockey mom who's local in, in my area. And we kind of asked her to run through the costs of uh, a season and something that was a huge surprise to me was the fact that uh for travel hockey you know to be on a travel hockey team and i'm I'm not sure if it's the same in canada but to be on a travel hockey team down here you got to pay the fees obviously for for your team and equipment and all that stuff but then also you're required to attend tournaments that are a whole nother set of fees. Mm -hmm. And so you might have to pay four grand to start the season, but also have to pay three grand for each tournament. And those aren't optional, you know, and there's no real assistance um, in those areas for, for a majority of families. And so looking at that, you know, we decided to give our largest scholarship is $5,000. And we felt that that was, you know, hopefully going to make a dent in the costs of of hockey for a season and give the family an opportunity to maybe put one of their other kids in hockey or you know be able to attend those travel games uh, that are out of state or you know for in some instances international you know any way that we could offset those at least one of those barriers we are talking about. And, you know, Black Girl Hockey Club, once we have uh, been, you know, tried to address the financial barrier, we've also introduced our community to the moms and the players and their family members and their friends. And now they know that they have a space that they can come back to even when you know things are going good or things are going bad they just they have a space to and I think that's been another aspect of the scholarship that has been so fun to watch is to see the families say I didn't know you existed but now I do and now you know we're a part of this organization we don't have membership fees you know black girl hockey club we don't have membership fees we don't have you know an application if you are a black girl and you're a hockey fan or if you're an ally and you're a hockey fan and you're cool with us you're part of the club now basically yeah I, I, there's so much to unpack there. And I, you know, I, I think back to my time as a kid growing up playing hockey. And I've, I remember, you know, getting rides from Jamie Flello's dad, right? Like Jamie and I would go to games together and Jamie's dad had a van, minivan at that time or a van or whatever it was. And it's like, you know, they could, he could pack us in and we could, we could go to a hockey game or, you know, go to one of our practices or Colin, my friend Colin, his mom would drive us to, you know, and she was the manager of the team. Or, you know, I think of my friend Baldeep, who, who's Indo-Canadian. In fact, there was a lot of Indo-Canadians on my teams growing up. We were quite a diverse team, uh, you know, and, and so I think about his dad, and he would be absolutely willing to drive us to hockey games, whereas my parents couldn't do it because they were busy with work, right? It just wasn't in the cards. I mean, when my brother, when my brothers and my you know, my older brothers and my older sister, when they were able to drive, then they would, they would start to come with me from time to time. But I think that that barrier is, is there. Like you talk about travel hockey, that's a barrier. You're now got to fork out money and you got to go to another city and you got to get a hotel and you got to pay for food. And maybe you have a track suit or, 
I, you know, as a kid, I remember that tracksuit. I always wanted that tracksuit, but we just couldn't afford it. We just couldn't afford the tracksuit. Yeah. And I never really got the tracksuit. Um, you know, so those costs continue to add up. Mm-hmm. I want to reflect back though on, you touched on it very slightly. And I think what's really important is you talked about the social justice side of the sport and what's happened recently and what continues to happen, not only in the United States, but here in Canada. We just don't seem to expose as much light on these issues. And I think we need to do a better job of that. It's my you know, personal opinion. But what did it mean to you when the NHL finally stepped up and said, look, we're going to stop playing hockey for the next couple of days. And Ryan Reeves walks out there and he's got all these white hockey players standing behind him saying, we need to stop playing hockey for the next couple of days. We need to recognize what is going on in the communities. We need to recognize Black Lives Matter. We need to recognize the systemic racism that exists and the social justice issues. I want to know what your thought was there. And I also want to know your thought about Kim Davis being where she is. And so for the listeners or viewers that are out there, if you don't know who Kim Davis is, She's the senior executive vice president. She's African-American. She's been at the NHL for a couple of years and has done some groundbreaking work. So. And, her, and her job is specifically uh, diversity and inclusion as well, right? Yeah, part, yeah. part of her job. Part yeah. of her, so okay. Renee, I just want to unpack the social justice and what that meant to you for the NHL to do that or where you, you know, you know did you think they were too late to the game? All that kind of stuff. I just unpack that. You know, it was really heartening to see the NHL step up and take those days off of playing. Um, It was a day late. So, you know, that, I mean, we cannot pretend that it wasn't, but also it, it wasn't expected. You know, I, I, I don't know if it's because the bar's low for me or because I just don't have the expectations. It just didn't expect that to happen. And so I was pleasantly surprised when it did. And I do think, you know, executives like Kim Davis have a huge part in that, um, in the, you know, the, uh, the front office, the, you know, the C-suite, whatever you want to call it. Um, I feel that her presence uh, brings these types of social issues to the forefront of the conversation. It has to, um, just by default, when a black woman walks into the room, you know, we are bringing in all of our politics and all of our, our history with us. And so having her in the room is so incredibly important for black players and black fans, because that's a representation that we do not have otherwise. And so watching her work over the past Um, since 2017 when she was hired has been phenomenal to see the growth and the the way that um, social issues and just and specifically black issues have come to the forefront of the minds of of the folks in the NHL. I don't think that without I think without her and her her passion for inclusion and for community building. I don't think that um, the work would be where it is now within the NHL. And that being said, I, you know, she knows, and we all know that there's 
so much more to be done. And I think that it's something that we cannot expect one woman to do all on her own. Um, and, you know, something that I talk about often is um, diversity and hiring. I think that that's incredibly important at this moment in time that the NHL look outside of their circles to do hiring so that people um, of color can have that seat at the table, Mo, that you, you talk about. Um, because we don't just need a, a place on the ice or on the bench. We need to be up in the front office. We need to be making those decisions. We need to be in the room when those decisions are being made to voice our concerns. And that's, that's what Kim has been doing this entire time. Um, and so whenever the, the Hockey Diversity Alliance and specifically, you know, Matt Dumba went out in front of, you know, that very first game to to take a knee and to you know talk about black lives matter and the importance of that phrase the importance of the definition the importance of the the need to bring it to the forefront i think that that was a, a watershed moment for hockey and i want to see that momentum keep building and and keep pushing forward that's that's the hope anyways that this doesn't just get dropped for another you know newsworthy topic that this is something that is going to be a continuous change and i think the creation of um the various inclusion committees by the nhl is a good idea I, you know, I know that there are on each, each committee, some folks of color on there. Mo, I know that you're participating in the youth hockey one. And so that's, that's heartening for me. That's exciting for me to see. Um, that doesn't mean Black Girl Hockey Club isn't going to continue to hold the, their feet to the fire, because that's what we do um, to, to talk about it and to, to not sweep things under the rug, but to keep the conversations going. Um, that's the hope. Do you, do you think that, um, you know, I like the way you termed it. When Kim walks into a room, she's bringing her experiences with her. And it wasn't long ago when there was deep segregation in the United States and, and probably here in Canada. Like, you know, historically, we're not the best country in the world. We've, we've interned the Japanese. We, you know, we've done some pretty awful things to Indigenous people here. Do you think people are too dismissive in this day and age about the history and the recent history? Like, you know, Kim walks into a room and she's, she's African-American. She didn't come through the hockey ranks and, and she's there and she walks into a room. Do you think people are too dismissive of that? Do, do you think they just tend to forget about that? I don't know if it's forget so much as to purposefully not bring it up because it's uncomfortable to talk about. Um, and one of the things that, you know, that the last conversation I had with Kim Davis, we did a panel for She's for Sports um, with uh, Ainka Jess. And one of the yep. things that we all agreed on is that these conversations need to get a little uncomfortable. And so I don't think that it's, it's, um, it's something I read yesterday. Uh, it was in Robin D'Angelo's book, White Fragility. Um, I, they, she mentioned this idea that um, institutions that uh, 
really thrive on systemic racism, um, oftentimes would prefer to smile and to be, be nice uh, instead of have these difficult conversations. And that in itself is just upholding white supremacy, right? Let's smile, let's not make anybody uncomfortable, let's be colorblind, when in fact, that's, a, that's impossible for a person of color to achieve. And, you know, um, white people are not neutral, they're not non-racial, everyone has to acknowledge our differences, be, because those make us unique and better. And so I think that um, the time of, of smiling and playing nice is over. We've got to have some of these uncomfortable conversations in order to move forward. If we don't, if we don't then the institution of hockey, it could just collapse within itself, or it could just exclude an entire demographic of people that really want to in, be involved and really want to be part of it, but have not found the avenue and feel completely shut out by the sport. And I know that Kim Davis doesn't want that. I, and I know the NHL can see that that's not financially viable for them. And so I hope that the, you know, whatever motivates these conversations to keep happening, I'm okay with that. And, you know, um, I, I want to go back. We were talking a little bit about the pause that, that we just had a, a few weeks ago in the NHL and, and in other sports and, um, and, and, and the actions that have come out as a result of those pauses. And, and uh, like, I, I really want to give kudos to the NBA and to LeBron James specifically, who have not only uh, like essentially put their money where their mouth is and put money into uh, was it voting rights uh, areas in the United States to, to guarantee uh, uh, to guarantee the ability for especially people of color uh, to, to make sure that their ballots are cast in a, in a couple of weeks uh, with the U S election. Uh, and, and also uh, 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 arena operators have uh, uh, provided their arenas, their stadiums as space for voting. I, that, those are such a huge deal, especially during a pandemic when uh, one of the issues is around one of the biggest issues around voting is uh, whether or not you're going to get sick by casting a ballot. Uh, I, 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 I wonder if the NHL has to do more of that definitely has to do more of that stuff. But uh, the, where the NBA started was definitely a step in the right direction. Yeah, and you know, I got to give kudos to the WNBA too for leading leading out this conversation. I mean, those women have set an example for their brothers in the NBA on how to um, keep the the light shining on the topic of social justice and especially Black Lives Matter. And so, you know, I got to give that uh, whenever I, I had um, this conversation with Kim Davis, Megan um, McPeak was also there and she works for the WNBA and, you know, she's just such a powerful um, voice in, in her sport too. And so I got to give them props for, for what they're doing. Um, I would love to see 
NHL get more involved in tangible ways uh, with social justice, um, whatever that looks like for them. Uh, I, like I said, you know, I don't want to lose the momentum that, that they're building um, for conversations to shift from, you know, social justice to the Stanley Cup. It's, it's disheartening, you know, it's, it's um, frustrating to see those, those shifts happen. Um, but, you know, I do have faith that, that folks of color and allies are going to keep, keep pushing and, and keep asking for, for answers from the NHL. Um, and we've got to do it for the players because, you know, having such small numbers of uh, Black and, and BIPOC players uh, in the NHL, it, it makes them I'm, I'm sure it, it just puts a target on their back. We've got to do, you know, we've got to get our white allies to do some of the heavy lifting in this. And we can't just leave it to um, folks of color to take care of, of these problems. We really can't. So, um, yeah, and I think, I think that's a good point there because, you know, when you, when you saw, you know, what happened, it wasn't just Ryan Reeves that was out there, but it was Mario Belmar who was out there. Who's, who's French. Uh, and then you have Nazem Kadri, who's of Lebanese origin. And then you had Bo Horvat, you know, captain of the Vancouver Canucks, uh, you know, white player standing right up front. And I think, I think that's important. Did it make you feel, you know, when, when you saw Ryan Reeves and Jamie Benn and, and Robin Leonard, when they were, so those, there was four players. I can't remember who the fourth one was, but they, they knelt, right? Matt Dumba kneels, but you know, Malcolm Subban has his hand and Darnell Nurse has his hand on Matt. Was that, was that what, you know, like you said, the, the bar is low. Were you expecting more players to do that? Would it have sent a more powerful message? Had all of the players in that Vegas Dallas game, had they all kneeled, would that have sent more of a powerful message? Would it have been more powerful for them to just stay in the dressing room until the anthems were done? Like, I know the bar is low, but was it, was it kind of like a halfway point? Do you, like, what was your sense? Around? Honestly, I was in, I was in shock that it even happened. To be honest, I never thought I would see that in hockey ever, ever, <laughs> especially with players who are dressed and out on the ice. And so, you know, I have no expectations in that and just the fact that it happened with, you know, um, players of color as well as um, white players, you know, uniting from different teams, taking a knee, um, that was that was incredibly powerful. And I wouldn't, I wouldn't ask anybody on either one of those teams to do anything that they felt uncomfortable with, right? I mean, that's if if it becomes performative it loses its power and mm. so I don't want to see um, something that I know is going to be fought against in quiet circles um, tooth and nail just because they think that that that's what fans want to see um, I rather it be organic and and real and heartfelt uh, and if that means that it's Matt Dumba by himself or, you know, four of the uh, Vegas Golden Knights and um, Dallas Stars taking a knee, then that's wonderful. Either way, um, I, I wish I, they would have done it more than once. 
Um, but you know, I, yeah. I, I think that that, that's not, it's not on the ones who are trying to, to force their, their teammates to do anything. And so the fact that it got done and that it happened and that it shook the hockey world, um, you know, there were fans who were incredibly upset that that took place. Even, you know, what, what it was, was just too much for, for so many people. And so I think whatever was meant to be done, you know, whatever the, the outcome of that, it, it achieved what they wanted it to achieve. It, they, they got the attention. Sorry, guys. It achieved what they wanted it to achieve. You know, they got the attention of their fans and the rest of the league and, you know, they can, we can move on, but I, there does need to be next steps. Mm -hmm. you know, yeah. has become something that is an easy out, right? We need to see next steps. We need to see policy changes. We need to see hiring disparities addressed. We need to see some of these financial barriers that we're talking about addressed um, in integrating the sport of hockey into, you know, minority communities needs to happen. Um, all of those things are tangible changes that can take place. So um, in recent years, we're starting to see more and more minority broadcasters that are, that are uh, doing, that are broadcasting NHL games. Uh, uh, David Amber has been around uh, Sportsnet and, and Hockey Night in Canada for the last number of years, as well as uh, Anson Carter and Kevin Weeks, who've been around. And now the, the, the incoming Seattle Kraken have hired uh, Fitzhugh, uh, or, or no, Everett Fitzhugh. Uh, as their play-by-play -play announcer. And, and as someone who's been a play-by-play -play announcer for 12 years, I'm like, where's my call? Uh, but <laughs> but definitely, definitely proud to see someone who doesn't look like everybody else uh, getting behind the mic and going to be calling games. I wonder if he's going to sound the same or if he's going to sound different than, than, than the guys that we're, we're used to hearing. Um, do you think that's a, well, that's obviously a step in the right direction, but how can we, can we, can, where can we continue to do better as uh, not only, not just on the ice, but in the people that are, that are presenting the games to us? Yeah. I mean, you know, the hockey media is incredibly whitewashed. We, we, we've got to start, you know, expanding our purview in terms of who has, access to the sport in general, not just, you know, playing, but also in media. I recently had a conversation with um, the general manager, assistant general manager of um, PNC Arena in Raleigh, North Carolina. He works for the Carolina Hurricanes. He's a black man. And we talked about, you know, just the opportunities for young blacks students to get involved in the business of hockey. It's almost, I mean, it's not even on their purview. Nobody addresses it with them. Nobody headhunts young black kids to come work in hockey. It just isn't happening. And they don't even know about the opportunities that they, 
that are available within hockey because it's just not presented to them. And so that was something else that we talked about. You know, we, we want to see more people of color in the front offices, on the ice, but also, you know, asking the questions in the locker rooms to the players after the games. We want to see people of color um, covering hockey in, you know, national uh, newspapers and, and stuff like that. We want to see people of color doing, you know, uh, doing the color uh, whenever we're watching a game. I mean, diversity is not just adding white women to the roster. We need to add um, black women. We need to add LGBTQ voices. We need to infiltrate the communities that we want as fans. We've got to hire people that look like them and that have their shared experiences. Cause you know, just like Kim Davis walks into a room with her history on her back. So do the rest of us. We come with um, knowledge and experiences that are going to enrich that, that media room or that locker room or whatever uh we just need we just need that chance well i think this is a, a good you know what we're doing here today right just the three of us people of color who are talking about hockey a sport that we all equally love and we want to see the best things come to fruition by the way everett fits you Name that's very easy to remember for me because my dad spent some time in Tacoma. So I used to go down to Seattle, Tacoma a lot and, of course, spend some time in Everett. So I love the fact that his first name is Everett and that he's now the play-by-play, you know, personality for the Seattle Kraken. I, and Mr. Fitzhugh, I remember from a Matthew Broderick uh, movie. Anyways, The Tower. I don't know if you guys have seen it. Eddie Murphy was in it, too. Um, uh, so, so anyways, that, that's, and Alan Alda was in it too. So, um, but, but I wanted to, I wanted to ask about like, you know, we often hear the word allyship. So, uh, I wanted to ask, what do we, first of all, what do we do as men to support black girl hockey club? So that's my one question. And, and in that scope and in terms of providing support and allyship, how do we like, you know, the Black Lives Matter movement, like I always want to understand more. What do I need to do as a brown man to support Black Lives Matter? Because I know the nuances in which, you know, black people are treated differently. I mean, I, I get scared when I go shopping too sometimes. I'm not scared, but you feel that, right? Like you get that kind of you know, brown man shopping syndrome or whatever, and somebody's looking at you and the, you, sometimes my beard is a little bit thicker and I, I, I wonder, but, but specifically to Black Girl Hockey Club, how do we as men become advocates and allies? Like, what do you say to men? Because I think you've touched on it a little bit. Like hockey is not only exclusive because of gender, but now we're talking about race as well, ethnicity, uh, history, you know, you talked about that kind of, we all walk in with our baggage. So how do we become allies? What's, what's, what do you start to tell people? What I usually tell people, you know, who are interested in being allies to Black Girl Hockey Club is, you know, amplify Black voices, first of all. Um, sometimes it, it takes um, maybe just taking a step back 
and listening quietly. Um, I was in conversation with some coworkers yesterday and I had a, a, a one of the pers uh, persons in our group speak up uh, and he said, you know, as a white cisgendered male, how do I have a seat at this table? And my response was, you don't need a seat at this table. The table is yours, you know, let us have a seat at the table. Maybe just, just sit quietly and, and stop standing up and, and asking, but what about me? Because, you know, a lot of the times it's just giving access to black women to speak their piece and to say, you know, voice their needs and then amplifying those needs and asking the right people, what about these needs and why aren't these needs of these people being taken care of? Um, and so, you know, that's what I usually are, are t would tell an ally of Black Girl Hockey Club is to, you know, use your platforms, whatever it is, to amplify Black voices and specifically Black women um, to, you know, if it comes down to it, step aside and, and give your space to someone who has an intersection that perhaps needs it. Because, you know, you were talking about intersectionality, um, Black, being Black, being a woman, being LGBTQ, you know, being um, disabled, those are intersections. We talk, you know, being poor, those are various intersections. And when you hit all those check boxes, you have such a, like, you're gonna have a harder time and especially in, in white spaces. And so that's what Black Girl Hockey Club is meant to do is to, is to um, provide a community space for people who are, ha who are not at that table, who do not have a seat at that table. And our allies who want to lift up our voices are there conspiring right along with us to get that seat at that table. And so Renee, this will be my last question because we've talked uh, to you for an extended period of time and, and we all have work to do. Uh, and so what's next for the Black Girl uh, Hockey Club? What's next for Black Girl Hockey Club? You know, I think we are, well, we're working on an advocacy campaign that we're hoping to launch in the next week or so, knock on wood, and we're just really pushing for some tangible shifts in hockey culture with this advocacy campaign. You know, um, racism is not a, um, it's not a thought exercise. It isn't theoretical. This is something that is physically, mentally happening to, you know, BIPOC folks all across um, all levels of hockey. And so there are tangible changes that can be made, whether it's financially, um, whether it is, you know, using our platform to amplify voices, uh, or whether it is just, you know, taking a closer look at the policies that are, are enforced or not enforced in youth hockey um, and professional hockey too. Uh, we're, we're looking to, to gather as many um, supporters and as many voices as we can to push for some tangible change because the time for listening and learning is over. We're here to shake things up. We're here to disrupt. We're here to make people uncomfortable because these topics need to be addressed. And until they're addressed, 
you know, folks like you and me, we're not going away. No. We're going to keep talking about it. So that's what's next for Black Girl Hockey Club. Great. Well, uh, thanks so much for your time. Um, I hope uh, we're going to get an opportunity to, to chat again and maybe connect uh, over once we're, the world is open again post pandemic and we can actually go to hockey games uh, and we can actually and we can all do some uh, advocacy work together. Got to get oh, out to that Kraken game, man. Yeah, exactly. We'll meet halfway in Seattle. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> thanks for having me, guys. Thanks. Thanks so much. Thanks, we'll Renee. Yeah, thanks. Thanks so much to Renee Hess from Black Girl Hockey Club uh, for for joining us here on Unanchored. And uh, we had a great conversation. Uh, and, and Mo, I'm so happy to, to be able to, for you to suggest us uh, getting in touch with Renee and, and to have this conversation about like, Yes, we we as as two men, we we have this conversation as two male hockey players and people involved in hockey that like we we our blind spots around the game are are different than what what Renee is able to offer uh and and bring to the table for us. Like it's it comes down to uh like Renee is able to to talk about the how her experience as being black and being a hockey fan and, and how it, 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 she's not really like seen in a way like, and, and the fact that she's able to, to now be seen more uh, through the black girl hockey club and, and, and through her advocacy work and, and getting uh, more young black girls and more young people of color, girls of color involved in hockey is huge. I know my, my little sister played hockey as a, as a, as a teenager, but she was never, she's never been a hockey fan, but Renee is like a huge hockey fan, never played the game and, and is doing so much more now. Like how, how important is that? I think it's, it's so important. And I think her journey, just like everyone else's journey is going to be different. Um, hers is very different, you know, coming to the sport later on in life uh, and coming at coming to the sport as, as a fan and really kind of being a, uh, a fan of fandom and developing that. I mean, that is a remarkable story. I love the fact that she talked about, you know, flying across the country and, and, and going to watch a Washington Capitals game, you know, from Southern California, you fly all the way across the country to go and, and watch hockey. Like that is a true hockey fan right there. Mm -hmm. And I love the fact that she's been able to connect uh, not only with, uh, with young uh, black girls who are learning how to play hockey and black women who are into the sport of hockey. But I love the fact that she's talking about more of a global movement that, you know, they have people who are, are engaged from, from the UK and Kenya and in Canada and all across the United States. I mean, that is the power of a movement. And I think Kim Davis always says it the best. It is not a moment. It is a movement, right? And that's mm -hmm. what, this conversation with Renee, in my opinion, that's what it highlights, that she's developing a movement, that this is something that's going to continue. And I know working with, you know, young uh, women, uh, getting them into the sport and, and some of them who are, are black, it's, you know, their journey is what drives our organization to do the work that we're doing. And I love the fact that you even talked about, um, you know, us being two guys in the hockey world, our blind spots are there. And that's why, you know, I asked about what do we do as men? What do we do as men of color 
to support and to be allies. That word allyship is thrown out a ton everywhere. How do you be an ally? Well, it's, it's about getting involved in the movement. And sometimes it's about just listening and learning and sitting at the table and being quiet and listening to where that explanation is coming from. And I think those are powerful messages that, that Renee is, is fostering. And I, I think she's doing a great job. I was, I'm so happy that, you know, this was my first conversation with her. We've traded some emails, but I love what she's all about. I've known about them for a, a little while. And I, I know that Hockey for Youth is a foundation. We're just going to continue to connect with Renee and we're going to do something special at some point. I, that's, there's no doubt in my mind. And I just want to be a part of whatever it is that she's doing to grow the game. Mm-hmm. You know, these, these are populations that have just been kind of left, you know, off, off the rink. And we always say that the only barrier should be the boards. It's not just about being on the ice, but it is about being off the ice as well and mm-hmm. being a fan. And, and yet just being involved in the game and showing why hockey is the best game in the world. Like th- this is our favorite sport, the, the sport that we, we are so passionate about and we like, both live for. Uh, and, and this is like, and we want, we want everyone to be, to, to, to love this game as much as we do. And, and we're working slowly, but surely to, to increase that, that awareness about the game and, and, and inclusion, uh, it, of, of the game as well. And, and, and that brings us to the conversation that we had subsequently after Renee, we brought on, uh, my, my friend, uh, uh, someone that, that, that's interviewed uh, you, Mo, as well as uh, uh, a, a former colleague of mine from McGill, uh, Salim Valji. And, and Salim is a, is a, a producer, assistant producer for, uh, uh, for the Montreal Canadiens broadcast on, on TSN, as well as uh, uh, is a freelance writer for the New York Times. And Salim does a lot on uh, diversity in hockey and, and covers diversity issues in the game and is quite vocal and, 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 and is quite involved with uh, telling the stories that, that, that may not be told by other uh, hockey reporters. And, and uh, got it. You got it. Our, during our conversation or before our conversation, you got a chance to uh, tell uh, that uh, the story of, of how you made it into the New York times through, through some of the reporting that, that Salim was doing. Yeah, I mean, he, he reached out and, uh, you know, thanks to your connection, I, you know, that's how I got to know Salim and, and him and his colleague Etienne Lajoie reached out and said, look, we're, we're starting to do profile piece on, you know, racism and, and diversity in hockey and inclusion. And we love what Hockey for Youth is all about. And, you know, it really was an opportunity for us to, you know, showcase what it is that we're trying to do to make the game more accessible, right? There are so many barriers that exist in hockey, whether we talk about the social or gender barriers or financial barriers or ethnic barriers or race barriers, there's barriers all over the place to get into the game. And so, you know, really having that conversation, I, I think what's, what's important is, yeah, Salim is writing about this stuff, but I love the fact that, you know, he's not just the reporter that's writing about racism and diversity. At the end of the day, as you mentioned, Zamir, we are fans of the game. And so I think reporters of color also realize that, look, we just want to be journalists covering the sport, not journalists who are covering the sport because there's a race or diversity issue that needs to be covered that's coupled with the sport. Mm-hmm. And, I, and I think that's critically important. I think it's good uh, that reporters of color feel 
this. And I think Salim, you know, talks about that in a way that is critically important. And much like you with this podcast, how you, you've developed it with Shahid, I think it's great because it provides a platform and a learning opportunity, not only for, uh, for other young, young up-and-comers, but it, it may be a way for us to get our voices out. And I think he's doing it through the traditional media and you're doing it in a quote-unquote non-traditional way, although it's become fast traditional. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, this is important. And I, I think Salim is, is blazing a trail and especially in our community, but outside of our community, I think being a person of color, he's, he's taking a lot um, into the rooms that he's going into and he's calling things out the way they need to be called out, but he's also nuanced in his other approach that he wants to be still recognized as, as a sports journalist. And, uh, you know, so he's playing that balancing act. And Salim can be found yeah, in his writing, uh, with the New York times as well as, uh, uh, he also has done some pieces for the Montreal Gazette and regularly uh, works behind the scenes on the Montreal Canadiens broadcast on TSN. Let's go to that interview right, right, right now. Salim, uh, great to have you on the podcast. Uh, our, our first chance to chat officially after uh, a little bit of time working together in Montreal. And now we're a little bit bi-coastal. Uh, you're in Bastille, Montreal. Uh, Mo in Toronto and then me back on the West coast. And, and uh, it's funny, like our relationship working together were, we were uh, essentially a team of five or six broadcasters at McGill that yeah. were funny enough, like on, on a, a sports in a sports organization, McGill athletics, that was overwhelmingly white. Yeah. We had, two brown broadcasters, two black broadcasters, and a, a supervisor that was, a, was also a South Asian guy. So it, I always found that a little bit ironic uh, during my time at McGill. Yeah, it, it was cool. It was a fun culture to try and build and, and work with you. And you're right, it, it overwhelmingly was Caucasian. And um, uh, working at McGill as a colored person was, was really, really tough. And um, there were a few instances of overt racism that I experienced while working at, with McGill Athletics and Recreation. So it was fun to have that climate where even some of our camera people who were really awesome there, they were uh, a diverse group as well. So it was, it was good. It was, and we brought something really unique to the table. We, we all had really different backgrounds. We all, diversity is a strength and it's a strength in, having different perspectives, having different life stories, having different approaches. And we, we did a great job and diversity was a big reason why. And it's just, so one of the things that uh, your focus on now and you were writing when, when we were still work, working together at McGill, but then you were also uh, you're, you're more full-time writing uh, since then uh, focused on diversity and, and diversity inclusion in, in hockey and in sports in general. And, and can you explain uh, some of the stuff that you're really working uh, to focus on uh, uh, recently, especially when it comes to diversity uh, around hockey? I think what I'm focused on is, is simply telling stories that haven't been told for a really long time. We, we are talking about a sport of ice hockey that's extremely Caucasian on the ice, but it's also extremely Caucasian in the press box and in the production truck and 
in in media executive meetings the the sport overwhelmingly is played by caucasians and it's also covered and reported on by caucasians so i've been focused just simply on telling stories um race racism in hockey has been prevalent since it was invented uh here in montreal uh many decades ago and and those stories haven't really uh found the the limelight quite yet so whether you know, whether it's, it's writing for the New York Times, I've, I wrote a story about Akima Liu's um, reaction to a, a Players' uh, He wrote a Players' Tribune story and then I did an interview with him afterwards. It was a story like that. Back in, back in uh, December, I did a deep dive for the New York Times with uh, one of my best friends, Etienne, on, in, on race and cost in hockey. It was a two-part series. So, so it's just stories like that, trying to tell stories and ask questions that other reporters haven't asked during their careers and bringing, um, bringing awareness to these really prevalent issues in the sport. On that note, you know, you, you talk about Akeem and, and obviously there's a lot that's happened since that time. Uh, you know, you look at Matt Dumba's speech uh, prior to the start of the, the new NHL playoff system or format in this pandemic time uh, you look at what happened when you know the nhl players decided that they were gonna you know stop playing hockey for a couple of days to recognize social injustice and systemic racism and black lives matter you know since that time since akeem's story came out in november and fast forward to where we are now what do you think the momentum is or has been, uh, and, and in terms of where do you think it's going? Do you think this becomes just a flash in the pan? Well, this is what's happening because there's a pandemic and Black Lives Matter is, you know, we're hearing about people, you know, being shot and the stories are being covered by the media. Like, where do you think this goes in the hockey world? I don't know. I, I'm probably more pessimistic than a lot of people we, we, regardless of what happens, it'll be a handful of years before we really have an answer to that. It, it takes a long time to change a culture. It, it really does. I think Kim Davis was brought, up, brought on a couple of years ago, and she's basically trying to upheave a culture of conformity and of exclusivity that, that's been built for, for over a hundred years. And it doesn't just take a couple of years to change that. And you look at who the gatekeepers remain in the sport of ice hockey, it's almost entirely Caucasians from the president level down to the coaching staff level. It's primarily Caucasians. And I, I think it, it's trending slowly in the right direction if, uh, if we talked a year ago about 100-plus National Hockey League players using the phrase Black Lives Matter in social media posts, we would not have ever believed that. It would have it seemed so ludicrous. Whereas here we are now, and someone like Tyler Sagan has posted about that, Zdeno Chara, Jonathan Taves, the list goes on and on. So that does kind of give you an indication. But at the same time, you wonder, is that, is that more of a reactive reaction by the sport of ice hockey where finally they are getting held accountable for their their flaws and is this a sport that knows it's in trouble with regards to registration and and tv viewership in the united states that isn't remotely on the same level as the national football league 
do they do this? Do they make these gestures for uh, the right reasons or is it, is it sort of a branding exercise? Uh, regardless, it'll be a few years before we ultimately know. And that's maybe where, where you come in, Mo, because you're, you're at that grassroots level. So in 10 years, will the percentage of non-white hockey players in the National Hockey League still be 5% or will it have edged up? Will there be any National Hockey League uh, general managers or team presidents that are, that are not white? Will there be any coaches? So it'll be a, a while if, if we see the fruits of this labor. I am on the more pessimistic side. It's, it's nudged slowly in the right direction, but it's not quick enough. And the motivations, you, you do have a right to question them, whether they are for good intentions or whether it's a brand building uh, exercise. And you speak about like coaches or uh, like, and, and we've had what one indigenous coach in the NHL and Ted Nolan. And that's like diversity as far as coaches go. Uh, I, and, and we ha I don't remember them there being an, uh, a black or, or non-white general manager. And we talked with the, we talked with Renee Hess about uh, like the lack of diversity on the hiring level. And really it, it is it, it comes down to, it, does it even come down to like scouting? You, you need to have someone that like can maybe see uh, like a black or non-white hockey player, like even at, at the scouting level? It's a great question. Uh, well, well, in a different context, I live in Montreal and there, there's pretty much a hundred percent chance that Claude Julien will come back this year to coach. But in Montreal, we all know that you have to speak French to be the head mm -hmm. coach, you have to speak French to be the general manager. And I've thought this in the past where if, if Claude Julien were to get fired, who could, who could replace him? There, there are really only a handful of people that would be qualified to do that. People who sp uh, speak French and coach hockey at a high enough level. And I don't see the Habs investing in the development of Francophone head coaches. I don't see them investing in the, the, the development of Francophone sports executives. And that's kind of bizarre to me, given, given the, the linguistic and cultural kind that we have here. So I think it's similar to, to, to finding executives and coaches that are visible minorities where you, you, you don't have a ton of role models right now. Dirk Graham, I believe, is the only black head coach in National Hockey League history. He lasted just a season with the Chicago Blackhawks. And you're right, Ted Nolan as well. So that's two people. Um, I think it starts in, in the coaching case. It starts with the National Hockey League Coaches Association, which is – taken on a bigger role and it's become more prominent in recent years. And, and I think also, I think a lot of national hockey league scouts, in fact, the majority I would imagine are over 50 years old. This is a very much a profession that, that is monopolized by older Caucasian men. And ex players, and, especially. Yeah, exactly. And you, you probably have a fair amount of bias, whether it's conscious or unconscious at that point. And I'm not sure if sensitivity training is the right way to approach these things, but you, you have to recognize your, your biases and, and the flaws in which you approach things. And um, it, it starts also even at the grassroots level where, where do black players, do non-white players get the same first line opportunities as, you know, eight-year-old kids, because we know that the more, 
ice time you get leads to better skill development, which means that you'll get drafted higher potentially and on and on it goes. So there are a few things in that sense where uh, it can improve um, grassroots. It starts there, but also coaching seminars, coaching development programs and, and recruiting and identifying executive and coaching talent among the minority ranks. So I want to talk about, uh, you, you touched on it a little bit about, you know, kids and, and getting opportunities and having a seat at the table. Uh, for people that don't know about your touch points with hockey and how you grew up and how you came to love the sport, what's, where, where did that road start um, for you? And, you know, you, you talk about your career right now and you'll, you'll walk into a room and you'll be the only reporter of color, for example. Yeah. So talk about the love of the sport and then kind of connecting into what you do day to day to, to, you know, create accessibility and create space and have a seat at the table. Sure. So I grew up in, in Edmonton and I, I was born after the, the run of five Stanley Cups in nine years, I believe. And so it was, it was just, just a way to connect with, with um, my classmates and friends growing up in, a, in Edmonton and getting to, to watch the team. And um, I knew from the time I was a kid, I really wanted to be a sports journalist. And, and it was a fun little thing to do with friends. And it's a way to connect with something greater than yourself. Um, it's a way to have a conversation piece. It's part of your civic pride. Um, especially being in Edmonton, there aren't a ton of defining factors in that city. There's not the culture of Montreal or the scenery of Vancouver, you know, the, the, the ski slopes and the sea. Um, and it, it's just not that kind of city. And so the Oilers, I think, take on a bigger role. I think when I was growing up too, there was some stat that Edmonton produces the most number of National Hockey League players of any place in the world, which um, if it's true, is really, really cool. So that's kind of how I fell in love with it. Uh, I, I remember being being in junior high and Fernando Pisani scoring in game six overtime shorthanded and in the Stanley Cup finals. And uh, that was kind of the peak of my fandom. And then as you, as you, at a certain point, if you want to be a sports journalist, you do have to leave that fandom at the door. You, and in that sense, uh, I'm, I'm grateful. I appreciate the fact that when Akeem tweeted that, and, and I, I felt really, I felt a lot of emotions when that happened. But the one thing it did was it, it really made me abandon any sort of fandom I have for the sport now because you see really some ugly sides to it. And, and now my approach, thanks to Akeem tweeting, is a lot more professional. Not that I wasn't before, but you, you really, you have to see the flaws and you have to see the, the, you have to know that you're there to answer, to ask tough questions. That's our job as journalists. It's to afflict the comforted and to comfort the afflicted. So we have to be able to do that. So that's kind of how my approach has changed in during all of this. And I, I still love the the magic that the sport gave me as a kid I, I played it i i spent lots of money going to sky reach center to watch the some very bad oilers teams <laughs> uh and it's a really, it's really cool thinking back on that and you, they're formative years of your of your life and and it really propelled me to do different things it, it got me to montreal and and other places as well but but i do realize that as much as i love it it's a very flawed sport and um, maybe somehow by me telling these stories, it moves the needle maybe a millimeter or two in the right direction. 
So where are we like, we talk about the sport a little bit on the ice and, and, and it, a lot of it comes down to yeah diversity in, in, on the ice, in the, in the, on the bench, uh, in the, the executive suites in like in the staffs of the, of the league, but it, it also comes down to, and we spoke about this with, with Renee about, uh, diversity in the people broadcasting the games. And we finally got a, uh, a first black NHL play-by-play announcer in Everett Fitzhugh getting hired by the Seattle Kraken, which we won't hear from for another year. Uh, And we're starting to see a little bit more diversity uh, when it comes to coverage, when it comes to hockey night in Canada with the, with the addition of, of David Amber and and Anthony Stewart. Um, And Harner Ryan Singh. Harner Ryan Singh. Yes. uh, Also, but like there is, Hockey Night in Canada had a had a history of having a producer in Shirley Najak, who was uh, who who has been producing hockey games for what twenty years for Hockey Night in Canada, and and there's been a there's been a, a sort of a lack of pipeline that has continued to go down that route as well. So how do we create a pipeline of new broadcasters uh, of diverse backgrounds, whether it be former players or, or people like us that are, that are journalists or broadcasters that are really trying to, 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 to grind it out in, in the professional world. I, I don't know. Uh, I, I, I've met Shirelli before and he actually allowed me to, to shadow him uh, one, one day fairly recently, actually last season. Uh, and, and that was a really cool experience at, at Colt emailed him and, and he had me in the truck and, and uh, we didn't talk a ton because he's, he's doing his thing and I was trying to be as quiet as, a, as I can possibly be and not, not be a bother. But that was a really cool experience. I took like four pages of notes that, that just watching him work and the words he was using. Um, and it's impressive. It's, it's phenomenal what he's, what he's done in his career. I, I think what your asking is a question that that applies to all media because if you think about if you think about the barriers to entry for not just sports journalism but journalism as a whole it's pretty it's pretty nuts it's it's pretty tough to make it you oh yeah you probably will have to do you 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 samir know know as well um we've we've both done unpaid internships um you know having to grind in in different markets you might work six months here six months there um, the idea of saving money and padding your, your long-term savings is a bit of a pipe dream a lot of the time because you're constantly on the go. And I think that speaks to the bigger issue of the sustainability of media and how uh, news media, sports media, we're all kind of in that same group where, where we just don't know the answer right now. Uh, and because of that, odds are it'll be kids from more well-to-do backgrounds that get into the sport. Uh, into the into the field it's those people that will ultimately get more training and and likely get the better jobs and the cycle sort of perpetuates Uh, I think you can have certain scholarships certain bursaries that that you set aside specifically for minority candidates Uh, perhaps you know in in, I I work with TSN and um, you know maybe maybe one day there there is a a little fund where um, where there's there's a an internship that that pays a living wage and and you have it specifically for someone of a minority background and and they can learn the ropes and they they get they get a a top of the line experience so perhaps that's a way i know 
Bell and Rogers have, have um, a lot of money. So I, I don't know that it would be too tough for them to, to find the funds for that. So that's, that's one example just of a scholarship or bursary to, to enable people from different backgrounds. And I mean, I, I know it's tough during COVID, but, but job shadowing is, is so important as well. And I guess, I guess for me, you know, it's saying yes to everyone if they want to chat on the phone or at coffee or whatever you, you have to, you have to wiggle the door open for those ahead of you um, and then do your part. But, but it's definitely tough. It's, it's such a, it's an, it's a question that people that have asked themselves for a long time in media, just how do we get more diverse and how do we, how do we not just get people as reporters, but how do we get them as producers? You know, mm -hmm. producers are the vetters. Producers are a lot of the times the leaders in a given shift. How do we get them into those leadership roles? It's great. You can have a cast of, of 10 people from all sorts of backgrounds, but if the person that's vetting their scripts, if the person that, that's, that ultimately presses publish or not publish is, is Caucasian, then does it, does it necessarily matter, you know, because they'll have their own views on a story and stuff like that. So. Are you, are you seeing, you know, you're blazing a trail yourself. I mean, you're writing for the New York times, you're doing stuff for TSN. Are you seeing more of an appetite for stories showcasing diversity and inclusion, especially in hockey? I mean, you've now written several pieces. Um, you're, you're very active on social media and highlighting kind of, as you mentioned, the ugly side of the sport, but, but at the same time, showcasing the positive things that are coming, you know, uh, you know, Renee starting, you know, black girl hockey club and, and me starting hockey for youth. Are you seeing more of an appetite on that other side or on the editor side, on the producer side, are they more open to having those conversations than before? I think they are. Uh, I, I know that even with TSN, Shireen Ahmed wrote a, a piece recently about, uh, diversity and it was really well done. I think, I think there, there is because there's an expectation of it now. If you look at, if you look at a lot of social media hockey commentary, it's, it's about, um, you know, reporters are getting called out more. Um, and it's at a certain point they're starting, it might, it might be damaging to a brand. So in that sense, yeah, it's starting to get open up. Editors and producers are starting to realize the value of those stories and, and it, it's getting better. And we, again, our job is to hold people accountable and you might need a more diverse staff in order to do that. So. And, and do you think we'll ever get to a point? I know Shireen's, you know, written a lot about sport, but a lot of it focuses on, on gender uh, issues within sport, which are very important. Uh, I know oftentimes, you know, like what, what Akeem's written is, is stuff that of course is highlighting the ugly side, but do you think we'll ever get to a point where again, that journalists and reporters of color are going to be able to write about the sport? Like I've, I've heard conversations where, you know, you, you talk to people of color who are in journalism who are like, look, I, I, at the end of the day, just want to report on the sport. You know, you look at Shams Trania and, and what he's done, you know, covering the NBA. Nobody really kind of talks to him about being a, a reporter of color covering the NBA. Yeah, He's more focused on the issues surrounding the league or maybe he's talking about kind of the stuff that 
most sports reporters are doing, which is breaking news stories about, you know, people being traded and whatnot. Do you ever think we'll get to that point? Or do you think we're at this point where it's like, this is the barrier to entry for you now? We want you to cover those stories that are going to focus on diversity and inclusion. You're a person of, of diversity yourself and you want to, you know, yeah. you want to make a name for yourself. Like, I, so essentially what I'm trying to ask you is, are, are people going to get pigeonholed? I don't know. And I think about that a lot. One thing I, I've decided is that I don't want that to be the primary focus of what I do. If it, if it composes 25%, I'd be happy or, or 33% sure. But I don't want to be that reporter about race and diversity. I, I, I've had different opportunities with TSN recently for a couple of different stories about current events that have nothing to do with race and diversity. And I've really enjoyed that. Uh, and I'd like to continue that more. You're right. There's definitely the fear that we, we might be seen just as that's your role and you, you have to do it. Um, and that's your, that's your point of entry. And it, it would be, it would be really cool one day to have a non Caucasian insider for the national hockey league. That's breaking trades. That's, that's reporting on, you know, the Calgary Flames just giving uh, Jeff Ward a, a contract extension. It would be so cool to have that. And the, the nature of that role has changed so much that, that maybe it's possible now. Um, you, you talk about how you get information from sources that you don't necessarily have to be riding on, on the bus in, in Brandon in the WHL as a, as a 22 year old reporter anymore. You don't really have to do that. You can use your computer. You can, you can do all sorts of things to get sources and build a, build a reputation. I, I hope that we see that one day where we see someone, someone breaking trades and, and stories on a consistent basis for a national outlet. And that person looks like us. That would be, that would be incredible. I love David Amber. I, I think he does a remarkable job and it's great that we have, we have a few hosts and reporters now, even at TSN, there's Farhan Lalji and, and John Liu um, and Jermaine Franklin for, for a long time in Calgary. But, but it would be now I think the next step is as an insider, you have relationships, you, you have a certain level of credibility that, that maybe is a, is, is on a different level. And it would be really awesome if, if one of uh, us even, or one of our, our people that we've talked to uh, becomes that. So Shams has set the bar really high for that. And it would be, that's the goal. And I, I have friends in this industry who are visible minorities that want to constantly cover diversity and race. Mm -hmm. And that's what they want to sink all of their time and effort into. For me, I, I enjoy covering those stories, but I do fear about being pigeonholed and I don't want that to be more than, more than a, a certain number of a certain percentage of my work. For sure. And that's something that like we've like done a, a little bit on this podcast, but we've also talked uh, like, to all sorts, all sorts of different topics. And, and you come back to being pigeonholed and, and we talked to Donovan Bennett from sports center about that one thing about like, he has, has found himself as the black correspondent for Sportsnet, Uh, mm -hmm. and, and these are important topics that, that he's getting an opportunity to, to share. And, but yeah, I, I someone like me yeah. and what's that? I, I, someone's at the door. I, I, oh, so, uh, yeah. So some, uh, but there's other people like, um, there's other people like, uh, like Nabil Kareem and, and, and others that, that just want to be known for the work that they do. 
He's gone. He's gone to the door. Gone to the door. Yeah, I put him on mute for now, so we'll, he'll come back. Oh, okay. Uh, <laughs> but uh, <laughs> uh, yeah, in in the meantime, like there's so much, uh, so much around. Like I, I guess it it just comes down to access, right, Mo? Like like how do we get access to? Uh, I I think it comes places? down to. Yeah, I think it comes down to, you know, kind of having a seat at the table, right? Like it's, it, you know, at the end of the day, for us, for example, as an organization at the grassroots level, it's about creating space for kids who wouldn't have an opportunity to have that space, right? Mm -hmm. Without, without, you know, without that space being created, without them having a seat at the table or a chance to step out on the ice, you don't, you don't really get that chance to, uh, understand what the impact of it is on someone who doesn't have that opportunity. And I think it even comes down to gender. Like you guys, we are talking about a whole bunch of guys uh, who are, you know, people of color, but I, I think about someone like Kayla Gray and I'm like, I mm-hmm. want, I, I want to know more about her. I've reached out to her on social media. Just if I want to know more about her, I want to know more about her journey. Now you're not only facing that barrier of being, you know, uh, a person of color, but now you're a female sports reporter slash journalist in an industry which doesn't often give you, uh, you know, chances like we're talking about now. Um, so I think that's that's the end part of this is we need to have a seat at the table. You need to have a chance. And I think what Salim is doing is is putting, you know, he's blazing a trail. Um, Mm -hmm. you know, at the end of the day, he's blazing a trail. You're blazing a trail. We're blazing a trail. I mean, think about the podcast industry and specifically when it comes to hockey, again, dominated by white, uh, players or former players or white journalists, uh, you know? Yeah. And apologies for, (laughs) Oh, it's all good. All good. It's all good. Working from home life. Uh, (laughs) One thing I I wanted to say is, yeah, it's, it's great that, that we're doing it, but again, it's, it's about developing people at the higher level as well. And, um, and you look at, you look at what, uh, what the executive, what the board of directors looks like for most media companies and the representation at that level is still really low. I, I, I think the, that, that the Don Cherry situation, how it unfolded for the past few years and, and culminating last year was, was unfortunate, but you wonder if the representation was higher at, uh, at the board level, um, whether, whether the decision to rein him in would have been made much sooner. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't. And even the fact, I believe that his offensive comments were, were broadcast. Um, they, were, they were played a couple of times throughout the country after he said them. And if someone had said, hey, you know, that's, that crosses a line, would, would that firestorm have been avoided altogether? So... It's diversity at our level where we're, we're all working in our own ways as reporters and in the grassroots level, but it's also at the board level. And whether that, that maybe you don't need a journalism degree for that, maybe you need a law degree or an MBA, but we, we have enough educated people in our communities, that's for certain. Mm-hmm. So it's just about pushing those doors down. And, um, and again, it doesn't mean, you know, we have to write 10 stories a week about race and diversity. It doesn't mean putting a number on that, but it's, it's managing organizations in a different way and pushing for things when needed. 
So, so I think one last question, and I think uh, we're probably almost out of time with you, uh, Salim. But like, we had uh, a member of a, the diverse community, and we had specifically uh, someone from our specific community as the head of Rogers for a long time, and Nadir Muhammad, someone from Vancouver, and and like it, 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 it seems like there was opportunities to make changes at that time, but like. I guess our, even though the CEO of Rogers for, for many years was a, a South Asian man, like you're probably getting a ton of pushback from other people in the organization to not make changes and just to kind of like to kind of stay even keel along the same things. But there was an opportunity to, to, to create waves and to, to, to probably implement a lot of diversity in that organization, no? You'd think, and I've, I haven't thought about it. I'm, I have my bookshelf in front of me, and I think there's the book by David Schultz on there just about that hockey fight in Canada. And uh, yeah, it's you, you think about that, there's a missed opportunity. Um, I think Scott Moore was involved there too, and I've met Scott Moore a couple of times, but I don't see him as someone that's particularly embracing of diversity. Um, and... And he he kind of he built a very very Caucasian staff at, at Hockey Night and and at Sportsnet. So with with Nadir, I, I don't know. You you'd assume that someone of his background would would push for for opportunities. Uh, but but you're right. Perhaps it was a missed missed occasion. Um, ultimately ultimately I don't know if you can blame them for like there are certain talent standards. You know mm-hmm. you have to be able to speak clearly and and cohesively and you have to be a strong reporter and researcher and for all we know there might not be those candidates out there right now i think we all think there are but but there, there just might not be enough so so maybe that's an issue of the journalism schools and and, and creating that pipeline yeah exactly exactly i i imagine nadir would have wanted a lot more representation than there was but are there are there a ton of um, of non-white journalists right now in Canada that that can fill that role at a really high level? Uh, I'm not I'm not yeah. sure. I, I'd mm-hmm. I'd like to think there are lots, but there are standards at every job, and these are very very tough jobs for anyone to get. So for sure, it might be an issue of the grassroots level at the media at the journalism school level. Mo, uh, last comments before we wrap up with uh, Salim. I, I just, you know, I think that everything that, you know, Salim, that you're doing right now is so critically important, right? Because it just takes that first person. And especially when you think about, you know, you're, you're working and writing for arguably the most, you know, well-known or one of the most well-known publications globally. And so I think that's important. And I think it's, it's, it's part of, you know, a time where, we are the ones who are going to then knock down these doors, right? You talked about a C-suite executive level and another Muhammad being at Rogers and stuff. And, and yeah, that maybe in that generation as well, there, there wasn't an appetite to maybe rock the boat either. I, I don't know. Like, I don't know the whole story about, you know, kind of what he did and didn't do, but I think that you're right that there is, there's a time and place um, for this kind of stuff to happen. And so what I just, my final question to you was going to be about, 
where do you see, you know, in terms of the commentary, what, like, what does the landscape hold now? Like, how do you bring more people along with you? Uh, good, good question. I think you, for me, it's just by saying yes to everything. Um, there's a coffee shop down my street that I've had many a networking chat with for people over the years, just because I get these requests often enough. Um, so that's one thing. Uh, and I think, and we talked about it off the air. I'm not sure what level of vocal is good and at what point that vocality ends up not being so good, you know? And I'm, I'm slowly figuring out that line. I think you have to be really, you, you have to call people out when, when it happens. And, and today the, there was a slur that was said on the ice yesterday in the Vegas Dallas game and towards Ryan Reeves and no reporters really mentioned it afterwards. And that's, that's one of those things that I tweet about. And I think it's important where to pick your spots, which I'm learning to do. So, so being, still being vocal, still calling people out and, and shining a light on these things that whether it's flaws in, in the sport or, or in how media cover it. So there's that. Um, I've always had like the little, little dream of having a scholarship one day, just in my, you know, exactly how I want it kind of thing. And, um, and, you know, should my career progress to the, to a point where that's possible, then that's something for sure that I would do. Uh, and, and just trying to wiggle the door open in, in your own ways, big and small. I know, I know if a couple of people that are, that are non-Caucasian sports journalists that are trying to start something similar to the Hockey Diversity Alliance, but for sports media, and that's really bold and really, really brave, uh, and it's, it's needed. So just trying to do that in my own ways, similar how the, you and uh, Zamir are. You know, we're all trying to push the ball forward somehow, and I think we're all doing a really good job, and it's just, just about continuing and evolving. So, well, love it. Well, great. Uh, Salim, thanks so much for your time. I know it's still in the middle of the workday for, for all of us, uh, for those of us with jobs at least. (laughs) Uh, but yeah, thanks so much for your time. We'll let you get back to to your day and, and, uh, really appreciate you, uh, speaking up about this topic that that's really, uh, come to light in recent months. Yeah. And you guys are doing phenomenal work as well. So, so please, uh, continue that and, and, um, it's a movement that we're all a part of and we're all contributing to. So I'm excited to see what you two have ahead as well. Awesome. Thanks so much. We'll talk soon. All right. Talk soon. Thank you. Zamir. Thanks a lot to Salim Valji for joining us as well. Uh, thanks to Renee Hess and, and uh, Mo, thank you for coming on and, and, and uh, lending your voice and your, your expertise to this topic about racism and sport and, and uh, in, inclusion and in sport and, and, I don't think I know we touched a little bit on about it when we talked to Renee about your your role on the youth inclusion committee of the NHL and and that is it just it getting started in in its infancy uh what do you hope to get out of that uh that role Yeah so so my role on the youth hockey inclusion committee at the NHL you know first of all I think I'm the only South Asian on the committee, which is uh, pretty remarkable. I think I'm the only Muslim uh, person on the committee. And I'm, you know, I'm going to be taking my experiences to the table, not only uh, growing up in the game and then playing hockey in Vancouver and, and playing in university hockey up in Prince George, but 
but also, you know, what my experience is and has been in the corporate sector and as well as, you know, starting the foundation, the Hockey for Youth Foundation and, you know, what it is that we can do to, to break down those barriers um, that exist for, you know, young newcomer and high priority kids to be able to play the game. I think it's, it's important that, you know, you have an opportunity to play sport and especially a sport that's as great as hockey, that when you have that opportunity, it really gives you a chance to develop some of those things that you talked about, which is, you know, teamwork, um, respect, self-confidence. You know, these are all important skills that you need in life, uh, no matter what it is that you do. Uh, nobody works on their own. Nobody makes it on their own. Um, and so you have to be able to, to learn those skills. And sport is a great way to do that. You know, um, you know, you know, so when we talk about kind of girls and we talked to Renee earlier in the show, um, you know, girls, teenage girls drop out at twice the rate of boys in sport. And that's problematic, right? It, it, you, you know, you to have a healthy life, not only for your physical and mental health, but also to feel included, to develop those soft skills that you need in the workforce, uh, you know, critically important to develop that through sport. And so I think that, you know, my role on the Youth Hockey Inclusion Committee is about taking all of these stories to the table and saying, look, we can make this game so much better, right? The way Matt Dema talked about it, we can make the game that much better, that much greater. And, um, you know, so that's going to be my role. Um, you know, they, they talk about anti-racism, but also, you know, they want to battle homophobia and sexism as well. And so uh, you know, my role is going to be to be equally vocal on, on all of those areas and, and to do my best to also learn about what the league wants to do and where they might want to, you know, maneuver. But uh, I, I, I think that, you know, it comes down to what Willie O'Ree always says. And I've, I've known Willie since 2007, and I've been fortunate to spend a lot of time with him, and I've learned a lot. But he always says, you know, if you think you can, you can. If you think you can't, you're right. And, and that's, you know, that's the way you got to kind of go through these things is you just got to keep trying. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I, I think that's a great note to, to wrap up our show on uh, Mo, what's coming up next for hockey for youth. Yeah, we're, uh, we're in a pandemic hold right now, but uh, we've got some great things uh, that we're, you know, hopefully going to be able to share. We're, we uh, have been talking to the Montreal Canadiens and we received some good news over the summer about a partnership with them. So we're excited about that to be able to expand in Montreal. Uh, we've been talking to some folks out in uh, Nova Scotia as well um, uh, in terms of expansion out there. And, uh, you know, we're, we're looking at doing some great things, not only with the NHL, but the NHLPA through the Goals and Dreams Fund. Uh, we're looking at places in Alberta as well as BC and, um, you know, we're just trying to grow as, as fast as we can we're, uh, and to offer more opportunities. And pe people are seeing what we're all about. And, and to, you know, so we're excited to, you know, eventually get those things ongoing. Um, but right now we're at the mercy of the school system and, of course, the pandemic. So we're just continuing to do the advocacy work and, uh, you know, continue to share our message and, and make sure that uh, people know that we exist and, and uh you know, all the great work that we're trying to achieve. Uh, we're just focused on that right now. 
Well, thanks so much for stepping in for Shahid for this episode and, and we'll hopefully get you on again to, to talk about other issues as well that are close to your heart as well. Uh, so hopefully she will see Shahid back again very soon, but uh, for uh, Mo Hashem, I'm Zamir Kareem saying good afternoon or good night, good evening. Uh, you've been listening to the unanchored podcast and we'll see you next time. <laughs>